This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. In a controversial move, Ontario Premier Doug Ford and his Progressive Conservative Party announced that schools would go back to using a sex education curriculum that was created in 1998. Many critics say this curriculum, which was written in the early days of the internet, is outdated and fails to address modern issues that children and teens encounter nowadays. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Catherine Carstairs, one of the authors of a humanities article published in CMAJ. In the article, Prof. Carstairs and her co-authors look back on one of the first education efforts in our country for sex education. It's called the Health League of Canada. Professor Catherine Carstairs is a department chair and professor of history at the University of Guelph. Her studies include the history of health and illness and the history of public health. She co-wrote the article with Dr. Bethany Philpott and Sarah Wilmshurst. I've reached her in Guelph, Ontario. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you for having me. Catherine, your article addresses the controversy around the Ontario government's decision to go back to using the old sex education curriculum in schools. And in order to support your point of view, you decided to examine one of Canada's first sex education efforts, which was the Health League of Canada. What is this Health League and how did it come about? So the Health League actually started, its name has changed various times over the years, and it started as the Canadian National Council for Combating Venereal Disease, and it began in 1919, just after World War I. So during the war, the founder of the Health League, a man by the name of Gordon Bates, was a young physician who was interested in a variety of social issues. And he became the VD officer for Military District Number 2, which was Toronto during the war. Um, And as part of this, he formed a committee of social reformers to educate people about venereal disease. Um, And there was a lot of attention to um, sexually transmitted infections or what was then known as venereal disease during World War I because of the very high rates of infection. By 1915, testing showed that almost 30% of the men in the Canadian Expeditionary Force had been infected with uh, syphilis or gonorrhea, which was the highest rate of infection in the Western theater. And it soon became clear that many of these men had actually acquired their infections prior to enlistment. So Bates and others became convinced that a large-scale campaign was needed to inform Canadians about the risk of venereal disease and to urge them to seek treatment. Now, just before World War I, new treatments had been um, developed that were really quite effective. They were long and arduous and difficult to take, but they could actually um, cure syphilis. And so part of what they wanted to do was urge people to take treatment. Um, But Bates also strongly believed that an effort needed to be made to educate people about venereal disease. Um, And he believed that this education needed to start at home. So parents needed to tell their children about sex. Um, Social hygienists like Bates at the time feared that otherwise children would learn impure information from their peers in the schoolyard. And so he was able to convince a large group of Canadians that they should create the Canadian National Council for Combating Venereal Disease. Um, 
and they brought Emmeline Pankhurst, who was one of the most famous suffragists in Britain, um, to come to Canada to give a series of lectures across the country to educate people. And she argued that for the good of the race, Canadians needed to combat the menace of venereal disease. So the Health League promoted many good initiatives that improved the health of Canadians over the years. Can you tell us about what they were? So they started in this area of sexually transmitted infections, but they quickly moved into other issues. So one of their um, sort of secondary battles was the fight for milk pasteurization. So in the 1920s, much of the milk in Canada was still unpasteurized and many children contracted bovine tuberculosis um, and other illnesses from drinking unpasteurized milk. The Health League urged provinces and municipalities to pass legislation that would mandate the pasteurization of milk. Um, and a growing number of municipalities slowly did adopt legislation that requiring that all milk um, sold within city boundaries be pasteurized. They also engaged in a wide-scale educational campaign to urge parents to only purchase pasteurized milk for the home. And as time went on, even in places that hadn't adopted mandatory pasteurization, dairies increasingly did pasteurize milk, um, partly because more and more people were purchasing it, um, but also because there were economic reasons. For the dairies, um, the milk lasted much longer, so it was economically um, advantageous for them as well. So the League also got involved in childhood immunization campaigns. Um, so the first major campaign they engaged in was the campaign against diphtheria in Toronto. Um, before 1930, one in seven or eight children um, in Canada got diphtheria, and more children died from diphtheria than any other disease. A vaccine first became available in the late 1920s, and the Health League and other organizations began a large-scale educational campaign urging parents to get their children immunized are toxoided, as it was described at the time. The Health League also started a magazine called Health, which was available in many doctors and dentists' offices across the country. Um, and this magazine provided general health education on nutrition, exercise, accident prevention, water safety, cancer, a whole range of issues. What was the main goal of the Health League of Canada in terms of sex education? Well, they had a very moral vision of sex education. They believed that sex should be confined to marriage um, to prevent sexual experimentation. They also strongly argued in support of early marriage. People shouldn't delay marriage um, to avoid temptation. Thus, for example, when they made a film in 1933 called Damaged Lives, they showcased a couple who was delaying marriage until the young man had established himself in business. As a result of the delayed marriage, he ends up sleeping with a loose woman. He goes immediately to confess to his fiancée, and she immediately realizes that she's been wrong to delay the marriage, um, and they decide to elope immediately. Um, so in addition to promoting early marriage, they also believed in providing healthy recreation to young people in order to keep them away from temptation. Um, at their headquarters on Elm Street, they held dances and activities where young people would be supervised. And they also um, continued to promote the idea that young people should be aware and knowledgeable about the facts of life. They should know where babies came from. And so they provided education to parents um, to enable them to give this education to their children. What kind of things did the Health League of Canada teach and preach? So the Health League urged Canadians to be conscious health citizens who took care of their minds and their bodies for the sake of the nation. 
Today, of course, we understand the degree to which poverty and trauma are a cause of illness. But Bates believed that sickness itself was responsible for much of the poverty and that it was the duty of Canadians to keep themselves healthy by educating themselves about sex, um, about immunizing their children, to purchase pasteurized milk, to fight for water fluoridation, to exercise moderately, to eat nutritiously. Um, and so he had little patience for people who did not follow his health instructions. And there was a strong insinuation in much of the health league literature that people who got sick brought it amongst themselves. That's, for example, in a radio drama that the Health League produced in the early 1930s, um, they featured parents who had delayed having their son's tonsils out because they were worried about the expense. As a result, he comes down with a much more serious illness and the parents are scolded for not putting their children's health first, um, you know, and for not spending the necessary money on health. It sounds like there were good intentions, but perhaps not a great understanding of social determinants that we have now. Mm hmm. The council gave lectures across Canada on sexually transmitted infections, as you said, and they also had various other ways to promote their message, such as films and pamphlets and wax models. Can you tell us about these various tactics? Yes. Um, so I mentioned one of the films already that was Damaged Lives, which featured this young couple who both become infected as a result of the husband's premarital flandering. Um, the movie actually, in this case, ends happily when the couple realizes that they can be treated and cured. Another film frequently showed by the Health League was The End of the Road. This 1919 film featured two young women, Mary and Vera. Mary's mother tells her about the birds and the bees, and she grows up to be a nurse who rejects her boyfriend's advances before he enlists in World War I. Uh, Vera's mother does not tell her the facts of life, and she ends up having an affair with a married man and becomes infected with syphilis. Um, and so, you know, the moral of that movie was clear. They also had many pamphlets, including Healthy, Happy Womanhood, which urged young women to take care of their health for the sake of their unborn children. Um, another pamphlet was An Open Letter to Young Men, which counseled men to engage in self-restraint. Um, they also held social hygiene exhibits across the country in which they would show um, these films and a whole bunch of shorter films as well. Um, they would give out pamphlets and they would display wax models, which demonstrated the long-term effects of syphilis on the body. So as you know, long-term syphilis can have some rather sort of gruesome effects. And so they showed these to underline the severity of the disease and the necessity of seeking treatment. Um, and when we interviewed family members of Bates, they recalled that the wax models had certainly gone down in family lore as being quite spectacular. That's really funny. What happened over the years with regard to testing and treatment of sexually transmitted diseases? So to some degree, the, the Health League campaign and the other ones that were going on in Canada at the time in the 1920s seem to have had some success. Um, by the 1930s, rates of infection had significantly declined. Um, during World War II, they start to increase as the war gives license to a more liberated sexuality. Um, but during the war, much more effective and much easier drug treatments were developed. And so by the 1950s and early 1960s, it seemed that sexually transmitted infections were under control. 
Rates did start to increase again in the late 1960s as the baby boomers came of age. So you had a very large population of young people. The age of marriage started to increase and more people started to experiment with multiple partners. And so by this point, by the late 1960s, Bates, who'd started the Health League back in the early 1920s, um, is still head of the Health League, the organization he'd founded almost half a century earlier. And while Canadian society has shifted considerably in terms of its values over those 50 years, Bates, by and large, has not. He continues to promote sexual continence and believes that there's still a place for the educational materials that he had developed during the interwar years. So he publishes a piece in Health, for example, that was the Health Leaks magazine, um, entitled She Might Have Been Your Daughter, which had initially been published in the Globe and Mail in 1919. So it describes a young woman who is unknowingly infected with syphilis and gives birth to numerous damaged children as a result of you know, congenitally passing syphilis to the children. And so the story was like desperately out of touch in terms of the morality of the day, as well as the possible consequences of sexually transmitted infections in an era of antibiotics. So, I mean, his, his uh, teachings in no way match the kind of education that people required by the late 1960s. That is a career of some longevity. Indeed. <laughs> yes, he was very, one of his passions actually was a belief in, in moderate work for health. He believed in moderation in all things, and he was very anti-retirement. Uh, he thought that retirement would, would lead people to sort of shrivel up and, and die. So he, he worked well into his 80s himself. I wanted to go back to a comment that you made about having interviewed some of his descendants. And you were talking about the wax figures having come down as family heirlooms, as it were. Did you get a sense during those interviews that, that they found his work quite amusing? Um, I think that there was awareness uh, of the ways in which he'd become somewhat out of touch over the years. And that was particularly so that the uh, descendant that we had the most contact with was a woman named Pippa Wysong, who's a science writer um, and actually quite a public health activist herself. She uh, runs the quarantine tent, which goes around to festivals and other events in the summer and you know, talks about the history of infectious disease and how important it is to continue to get vaccinated. So, you know, in some ways, she, she has a lot of um, in common with Bates's, Bates's vision, or there's that, that history of public health promotion that's continued in the family. But certainly on some of the um, sexual stuff, she was very aware of the degree to which, you know, he he'd maybe lost his touch by the later years of his career. So back to the story of the Health League. Ultimately, despite many successes, the League lost its funding. What happened there? Well, there were a few factors at work. So by the 1960s, nearly half of the funding for the Health League came from the Toronto um, United Chest, which is a forerunner, essentially, of the United Way. And the United Chest, which you know tends to fund things locally, had some unease about what, why they were funding a national body when their goal was to promote programs that were sort of for the city of Toronto. They were also um, somewhat uneasy with the League's rather belligerent support for water fluoridation. Um, there was, you know, water fluoridation was very controversial at the time, and uh, the United Way just, it, it didn't really want to take a stance on the issue or be embroiled in it. So it was worried about the Health League's activism, sort of getting them involved in this debate that they didn't want to be involved in. 
And at the same time, Bates tended to be quite critical, even though he's getting most of his funding from the United Way, he tended to be quite critical of the United Way for not recognizing that sickness was the cause of poverty rather than poverty being the cause of sickness. And so eventually the United Way decided to withdraw its funding. This wasn't the only thing, though, because, I mean, the... The Health League had been successful to get other funds in the past, but by this point, its sort of web of supporters had significantly diminished. So when um, Bates was a sort of vigorous young physician who was very well connected, not just in Toronto, but beyond, um, he had put together this enormous uh, board of supporters who helped um, with the Health League's activities, um, but he was not very successful at recruiting from younger generations and and as time went on, the league's uh, supporters began to diminish. And of course, the league never had a proper succession plan. Um, it was Bates' creation. He was not very inclined to let go. And so he ends up working into his 80s, still very vigorously. But both people involved in the league and others began to wonder, well, what's going to happen when Bates um, finally passes away or, or retires? And there was clearly like no proper succession planning in place. And finally, the other thing was that the, the battles that the league had become well known for, so it was the fight against infectious disease, milk pasteurization, the sexually transmitted infections were, you know, to some degree largely solved by the 60s and 70s. I mean, obviously, sexually transmitted infections will become an issue again um, in later years. But in this in the 60s, they didn't seem like a huge problem. Um, and so to some degree, the league was a victim of its own success. Um, by the 60s, people are much more concerned about chronic diseases like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and other organizations had been established to serve those needs um, and had become far more successful at fundraising than the Health League. So the Health League goes from being a pretty dominant voice in the sort of healthcare scene in Canada to quite a minor voice. Now, why did you want to write this article? Well, over the past year, as the debate raged over the sex curriculum in Ontario, it was hard not to think about Canada's first major sexual education effort. And I think that the experience of the Health League shows how important it is to change the message as the values, culture and environment shifts. Bates needed to change his message to recognize that antibiotics had made syphilis a fairly easily curable disease. Now we need to adjust our sex education curriculum to recognize that children are sexting, um, that they're exposed to more visual sexual imagery than they ever have been before. We need to recognize that many children and young adults are identifying as trans and that many of them have grown up with gay and lesbian parents. And so I think the Health League very much shows an example of the need to change with the times. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. This is a fascinating article and an enlightening podcast. I've enjoyed talking to you, Catherine. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Professor Catherine Costes, Department Chair and Professor of History at the University of Guelph. To read the Humanity article she co-authored, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. While you're there, you can browse and listen to our many past episodes, and you can leave us a rating. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. <laughs>